0: Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, you read six verses like that, and you don't necessarily want to give an altar call because it just doesn't seem like there could be that much packed in to those very simple introductory verses. But one of the benefits of going verse by verse and even almost times phrase by phrase through a passage of Scripture is that term we use, unpacking it or unlocking it. And you'll see that behind the words there is a a mountain of spiritual kingdom substance there that if we will just partake of it, we can grow and our souls can be nourished. And so let me bring you this, this message tonight called Good News from a Dark Place. Why do I call it that? Well, it's really hard to imagine that Paul is writing the book of Philippians, which has a major theme of joy in it. It's hard to believe that he's writing it from a prison cell. At the very least, he's under house arrest. Scholars disagree on it, but I believe that based on what we're going to read in this study, that he is in a prison in Rome, and he's awaiting an appeal to see what Caesar is going to do. Paul is actually in jail for being a Christian who won't apologize or recant. And he's in a pagan jail, and in a Gentile jail, and in a Gentile place, and he's writing a group of believers that he won to the Lord, He planted a church there in Philippi. That church took on its own life with leaders that Paul helped prepare and ordain and and establish there. And then Paul went on to other missionary adventures. But his practice was when he planted a church, he established relationships. He would always either try to visit that church again, or he would often write letters. And some of those letters are what comprise our New Testament. So Paul's writing a church that has grown since he left it, and he hadn't been there for about 10 or 12 years. But he's he's heard some things. In this beautiful church, there's very little theology, deep theology anywhere except for chapter 2 in the book of Philippians. Almost all of it is kingdom relationships, kingdom components, and what it means to just abide in Jesus and experience the sometimes volcanic expression of his power, and other times the cascading waterfall, the refreshing power that comes from him. And so through this study, we're going to be able to both pack in some stuff in our soul, but I'm going to promise you something. If you come and you're listening and you're believing, it'll help the the relationships in your home. If you're married with your spouse. If if you're um, a parent or a grandparent with those little ones, if you live with your parents, it'll help you there. Because what what Paul is going to do is he's going to remind us for six chapters, in all of our ins and outs and ups and downs, he's going to remind us of this. Hey, don't forget you're walking with Jesus. Hey, Hey, don't forget Jesus lives in your house. Hey, hey, don't forget, Jesus is not there just to observe with a checklist. He's there to help and empower and restore and change and transform. And he's always reminding us that we're in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus is in us. And so it's from that reality that he, he's, he's really calling us to walk in a level of peace and joy that is the natural consequence of our growing awareness of the presence of God in our lives. The more I am aware that Jesus is in my life, the more I am aware of it, the more I grow in my sense of peace and joy. It is is an, an inseparable equation. The more I know he's with me, he's in me, he's for me, the more I'm going to walk in a level of peace and joy than in those times where I forget God. And so let's go there. Let's let's just look at it. From his opening words, we're going to be able to sense his, uh, from the apostle's heart, this strong love and his confident hope, his earnest desire to minister to these people at the church at Philippi. And so we're going to talk a little bit about relationships with leaders and all that. And because of the clock, I'm just going to launch into it. So I'm going to give you three points on the first verse. Go ahead and yawn. Go ahead. Get it out of the way. It's not going to be boring. Watch this. Paul gives an introduction to the Philippians. This is what I want us to notice from what he is writing. So, he's following a normal pattern of writing a letter back in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, and he opens up with Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, what I want to get from this is a reminder that Paul lived humbly. Now, watch this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... Now, let me remind us all about some things that Paul had experienced and had accomplished. Paul was the foremost Christian voice in the first century in the early church. Paul could raise the dead. Paul could heal the sick. Paul did and could cast out demons. Paul had uh, an apostolic fire to where he could, he could blind a man who was bringing disparaging uh, uh, reflection on the gospel. And Paul could remove that blindness. But you did not want to mess with the Apostle Paul. He wrote two-thirds of your New Testament. He took beatings. He, he took shipwrecks. He took imprisonments. Paul had sold out to the Lord Jesus. By the way, don't forget, Paul had an experience that that took him from Earth, planet Earth, up into the third heaven. And all he told us was, yeah, I saw stuff up there that I'm not allowed to talk about. I mean, Paul was... was unlike any other person that's ever lived in the church, at least that we know of. And so when he's writing, by the way, he was an apostle. So he walked in apostolic authority and everybody knew it. He was a missionary. He, and though he's not called a prophet, he prophesied all the time. We'll even see a, a smidge of one in this one. And he was a pastor, so he had, he had a gamut. He ran the gamut of gifts. And yet when he writes... To this church that he hadn't talked to in 12 years. By the way, he was their father in the faith. He had established that church. He said, it, it, "It's Paul. I'm with Timothy. We are the bond slaves of Jesus. No pride. No position. No asserting himself as the man. Um, no, no need to strut on paper. He just knew who he was. I, I, I find it compelling." that as we grow in the kingdom, as we experience more of God, and we must be experiencing more of God, if we don't have that thirst and that hunger, then there's a disconnect in our spirit. We must want him more. And I understand theologically that, that you know, well, let me not qualify it. There is always a deeper experience with an immeasurable, infinite God. And so we must live with that understanding. We haven't arrived yet. But even as we increase, even as we experience those things, we, we never want to look at ourselves in a way that, um, that, that vaunts our gifting, our ability, our experiences, um, what we've done for the Lord. Paul was in a habit of referring to himself as a bondservant. And, and it it really kind of is kind of cleaned up in the English. Let me tell you what it is. It's a slave. It, it, the, the Greek word describes, it's doulos, some of y'all familiar with that. It describes one who is the property of another. And in the Roman culture, the, the, the slaves, the doulos, was, was literally called a tool who could think. That's how they were referred to. And Paul said, yeah, in the grand scope of things, that is who I am in the kingdom. And it wasn't false humility. Paul just never found himself impressed with himself. And that's how he opens up. And I don't know if Timothy got a vote vote on, on what Paul called him, but he got lumped in there too. And so these two men are riding and they're riding from a place of incarceration and confinement. At least Paul is, and Timothy is able to come and go and serve him. So go to the middle of verse number one. So he lived humbly, And so I have to ask myself, do I do that? And can I do better at that? Well, certainly, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. Paul also loved liberally. I like this. Some of you wonder, Jeff, are you a conservative or a liberal? Well, let me just tell you this. When it comes to love, I want to be the biggest liberal I can be. What do I mean by that? It has nothing to do with politics. Paul is writing the church, and he says, it's me, Paul, and Timothy. We're the bond slaves of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm, I'm going I'm to take you behind uh, the curtain of, of kingdom leadership. And I know this is probably going to, you know, amaze some of you, but it, 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 is, um, it is difficult to love all the people you lead and serve equally. Now, this will shock you. There are some boogers in the church. They're there. And, and it, is, it, it is God's call on all of us to love them in the way that Jesus loves them. And by the way, the way that Jesus loves us. And so the commendation here on his leadership is the reality that Paul chose not to play favorites, knowing that there are some people at Philippi that um, some of them would be strong in the faith, others would be weak in the faith. Some of them were unpleasant in their flesh, others were pleasant in the Spirit. And so he includes all of them. He says, I am writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus at the church of Philippi. Some of them be Gentile, a few of them might be Jew." Some would be young, others would be old, there would be the wise and then the not yet wise. And all of these are together. And they're called to do life together in the midst of an extremely pagan culture that is dominated by the worshiping of the Roman gods or the worshiping of Caesar. And so this little band of believers are are, are saved and have been growing together as a community for about 10 years. They don't have a church building. They're they're doing what Christians do. We'll talk more about this on a Sunday series, but meeting house to house and breaking bread and and trying to find places to meet. And Paul is writing to to tell them that he, he had learned to love all Christians without prejudice. And and I think embedded in the middle of the verse is the reason why. Because he says you're all saints, you're all set-apart ones. When we think of saints, we think of alabaster statues and stained glass windows and all the big names and, you know, the Roman church. And that's not really what sainthood is. Saints are those who have been set apart by God in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you who's talking to you right now. Saint Jeff from Miami. It's me. I don't know where you're from. I got Saint Art from New York over here. Um, I, I don't know enough of your home places. We got, we got some saints from Jamaica, some saints from Trinidad, got some f- saints from Alabama who are wearing sackcloth and ashes because of a certain football game this weekend. But saints, friends, is not so much of, of what level of sanctification you're at. Listen, positionally, you're a saint the moment you bow your heart to Jesus Christ because he takes you, God the Father takes you, sets you apart in Christ, and, and you are now in his, in his cover, and you are for his purposes. And so that is why we love one another, because we are one. And I'm going to tell you something, there's, there are very few people, maybe you're a rarity, there are very few people who naturally, instinctually love everybody with a just a lavish love, a self-sacrificial love on an equal layering basis. Most of us, let me tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to tell on ourselves tonight, we avoid people that we don't want to take the time to learn how to love. We're sure there's some other people that will love them, but we're busy loving these. And by the way, they look like us, talk like us, act like us. And oh, maybe we're actually just loving ourselves. And so when we we see this, Paul loved liberally. I don't have time to stay here, but I'm going to tell you you're going to be hearing a lot more from this because I am pursuing this right now more than anything else I'm pursuing in my life. Um, I have spent years pursuing spiritual gifts, pursuing wisdom, pursuing knowledge, pursuing uh, sanctification and holiness, and all of those things are uber important, but I realize I have been tracking down those things because they are more in alignment with my temperament and the way I'm made in the natural. Love is hard for a lot of us. Now, the Father is saying, Jeff, I want you to pursue love with the same zeal that you pursued all of those other things. And none of those other things are bad. I'm going to continue to pursue them, but I don't want to get them at a higher level before I get a level of love that will allow those expressions of those other things to come forward. And so Paul had crossed that threshold. Let me just ask you very quickly, not to be answered out loud, but to be considered by you. Um, ha- have, you have you cordoned off people that you're just not going to love? There's people in this house. Somebody told me the other day that on the average Sunday we're running about 1,100, 1,000 to 1,100 through here. You, you just can't logistically love 1,100 people. I get that. But um, have, have you wondered if the Lord might be stretching you a little bit? Stretching you to love those that are of a different generation, a different culture, or... Are we going to be like birds of a feather flocking together in the smaller sense? Paul just said, I'm writing to bless all of the saints, and I'm doing so because they're in Christ Jesus. Now, let me get to the end of verse 1. Lord, help me. Um, Paul led strategically, so he loved liberally, he lived humbly, and he led strategically. This is for all my super charismatic friends in the congregation. He says he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, when Paul, by the way, remember, he's the guy that spoke in tongues, had angelic visions and visitations, had seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, had been caught up to the third heaven, raised the dead, healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, caused the deaf to hear, worked signs, wonders, and miracles. He was the most supernatural believer that we find anywhere on the pages of Scripture. And yet when he is organizing and planting his churches, he brought structure into it. Some of y'all are allergic to structure because you've been taught that, oh man, we don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. And, and listen, the Holy Spirit is God. And God wrote a little book called Leviticus. And if you think God is against structure, take, take the weekend and read through Leviticus, because your mind will just start to melt a little bit. It, the book of Numbers, by the way, it's a book describing organization and approach. And so, when Paul establishes a church, he put overseers in there. God would raise up qualified individuals, and you're going to be amazed in the Church of Philippi, the leaders that he mentions seem to be women. And so we're going to, we're going to touch on that. And and when, when we're talking about overseers here, this is another term for elders or leaders. The terms are not the most important things. We have got to get this. Uh, Twelve years ago, when I was teaching expositorily and, and expositionally and going through books of the Bible, I made such a, a point of saying, we must call them by the right terms. We, we can't just say pastors. We've got to differentiate between the giftings of a pastor and an elder and a deacon. What does a deacon do? And all... We get hung up on the terms. I want to get to the substance that kind of fills those terms. An overseer is, is a leader, a God-appointed leader that has God-appointed qualifications, which we don't have time to go into tonight, but they're actually in the Bible, And if a person doesn't meet those qualifications, they can't be an elder or a leader. And then you've got um, the statement here of deacons. Deacons, how many of y'all were in churches where deacons ran the show? Anybody been in churches like that? I I don't want to offend anybody, but I don't mind if you do get offended because it's truth. But here's the reality. Deacons were never leaders. They were never leaders in the New Testament. They were great, godly, spirit-filled servants. But they were never leaders. Back in 1998, you know, I'd been saved a whole four years and um, been, been serving for a year and was just convinced that, you know, if everybody would get out of my way, I would change the world for Jesus. And so a little church in um, Aiken, South Carolina, is that a place, Aiken, they, they, I don't know how they found me, um, they called me and they said, yeah, our pastor's resigned and we're, we're looking We're looking for a pastor. And, man, I just knew it was it. I was like, here we go. Watch out, world. God's about to launch me. You know, I had been stretched tight for 20 seconds, and he was about to launch me. (laughs) And so, as I was talking to them, and this guy, man, he sounded like, you know, he ate gravel for breakfast. He was just about as country as can be, and I had an old voice like that. He said, well, Jeff, uh, we are a deacon-run church. You got any problems with that? That, that sound you heard was my hopes crashing to the ground in that moment. Because even as a, you know, uh, a 28-year-old, I knew that if they're telling me on the phone during the interview that the deacons were going to run the church, how bad do you think it's going to be when you pack up your bags, move your family down there, and try to pastor and lead? Um, Paul led, led strategically. Um, God doesn't gift arbitrarily. Every single Christian has spiritual gifting, every single one of us. And if you want to go back and read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 as a refresher, you're going to find out in chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit gives the gifts, He gives the ministry that that gift will be employed in, and He also gives to each person the gift that He wants to give them, and it is incumbent upon the body of Christ to acknowledge and affirm those gifts and make sure those gifts aren't wasted. And what Paul did is when he, we're talking about Holy Ghost Paul, supernatural, you know, Apostle Paul, Paul wasn't so, you know, caught up in the spirit that he didn't lay down some plans about how things should work. And I want us to remember that. The, The two ditches that we have to avoid are the ditches. I'm talking about in the kingdom as we are organized for care and ministry. We have to avoid the ditch of overstructure and the other ditch of no structure. Both those ditches stop everything. And what Paul did is he established people, he loved on them, he trained them the best they could, and then he turned them loose, and a lot of it was trial by error. But eventually, people step into their gifting, and when you'll stay in your lane, and you'll let God you know, take you through the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs and the learning curves. Friends, if you'll just stay and bloom where you're planted and you'll, you'll be there for a bit, God will do amazing things in an assembly like that. Um, we'll, we'll come back to this later because it's brought up in another chapter, but let's go down into verse number two. <laughs> 20 minutes and one verse. It gets, it gets a little more interesting too, a little more, a little more real for us. Paul's benediction over the Philippians. This is beautiful. I want you to get the heart of the apostle here because he's writing this group of believers and he's giving them—he's the people an ability to exhale because you never know what the, Paul, the apostle is going to write. Go read 1 Corinthians. That was not an exhale epistle. That was an in-your-face epistle. The Philippians got an exhale when it was easy. He says, grace to you grace to you. It wasn't just the common greeting of that day. It was Paul's way of contextualizing the entire Christian life. I want you to hear me, especially if you are prone to trying to gain God's favor by performing at a higher level than yesterday. If you, if you just don't feel like you're accepted by him because you, you, you were a bad girl today or a bad boy today, or if you didn't break yesterday's record, and, and there, there's so much in, in us like that. And our culture conditions us for it. And every competitive uh, context in, in, in America says you only get the reward if you do better. And, and that has so infiltrated the church. And I'm not diminishing uh, an intentionality towards being, living in excellence for the Lord. But I'm saying we forget grace. We forget grace. He says grace to you. I'm just going to give you some quick reminders because once understood and once we embrace the truths of God's grace and perhaps the most reassuring and calming components of all of Christian theology, and it flies in the face of constant toil. The devil wants you constantly toiling, constantly striving, constantly trying to, you know, beat your best score. And it is exhausting. I've lived like that. I've confessed many times in this house that I was a first-class royal uh, legalist. And I would judge myself harsher than I would judge anybody. And I was not happy. And I had a lot of results. I bet when I stand before Jesus, all the results I got during those years will not turn into rewards. I bet they will be smoke. Why? Because it was on me. And so when, when I accomplished it, you know, I was, I, was, I was skillfully proud. I'm confessing and testifying. I was skillfully proud. I would slam dunk something in the kingdom. And inwardly, I'm going, I'm high-fiving myself. I am rocking and I am rolling. But outwardly, outwardly, I'm like, it was the Lord. It, it was the Lord. It was the Lord. So it's a double loss. Not only was I high-fiving myself, but I'm faking it on the outside in order that I'll get more approval for being humble. So it's just terrible. And then God ambushed me with grace. I'm going to tell you, I wrestled against it for a long time because it felt compromising. It felt like permission to, you know, be a slacker. But that's not Bible grace. So let me just remind you, you're saved by grace. Let me give you, um, you know, Bible sword drill here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own selves, it's the gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Romans 3, verses 23, 24, and 25. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So, just very clearly, I know you know this, but sometimes we forget it. You were saved by grace. The only thing that you added was the sin that made your salvation necessary, and then faith to believe that Jesus had taken care of it. Faith and repentance. Repentance and faith, they're intertwined when it comes to salvation. That's all you brought, and so, listen, you're not going to earn it if you're here tonight and you're just trying to do the religious thing and trying to get your act together and trying to clean up so God Almighty will say, hmm, fine specimen, let me take her or him in. Listen, I'm just going to let you off the hook. You, you cannot clean up enough. Matter of fact, the more you try to clean yourself, the dirtier you get. And so grace comes, and grace is God's choosing and favor and gifting of you with the immeasurable gift of eternal life that his son has paid for, and all he requires of you is to bow to his son in faith. But it doesn't end there. Grace abounds above our sin. Raise your hand if you've sinned since you've been born again. Some of y'all are liars. Or you just didn't, I didn't give you enough time, but... Romans 5.20, very simply, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, it's such good news to give the impossible cases in our lives that feel like they have gone so far that God could never forgive. He, he's never looked at a sin and said, "No, I can't match that. I, I just can't. I can't help you." He's never looked at a sinner and said, you, you're, "You're just you're you're too big of a mess." And for all of us, um, I've had some seasons of implosion as a believer. And you can you can let your mind wander and wonder what all that is. I'm just telling you as 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 a man that I have just had seasons where I was I just look at my heart and say what a compromised heart and if it was incumbent upon me earning it well guess what I wouldn't but every time as a sinner as a, excuse me as a saved person that I sin and when I'm tempted to despair when I'm tempted to believe that God is just fully done with me because he's sick of the same confession he He just says, Jeff, there's there's more grace. Wherever your brokenness is, I'll fit grace in that. Um, A little bit further, we can rest in knowing who God has made us because of His grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. For by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. That's amazing. Listen, at some point, God wants you to look in the mirror and say to the person staring back at you in the mirror, I like you. God made you who you are. I love you because God loves you. I don't hate you anymore. I don't despise you anymore. I'm not going to shame you anymore. I like you. Hey, person looking at me in the mirror, I like you. By the grace of God, you are what you are. And until we can come to that place where we can actually accept who we are, you, you will never become the person that God has destined you to be if you don't reach the starting point of acknowledging who you are. And by the way, when you acknowledge who you are, you're also acknowledging who he hasn't made you. And so it kills the competitive drive in us, the, uh, the comparison epidemic in the church. I'm not getting through this message, by the way. The, the uh, I, I, Man, if I only had that gifting, if I only had that platform, if I only had that ability, if I only had that beauty, if I only had that money, if I only had that strength, then what, what is that? Well, that sounds like the echoes of hell. That doesn't sound like the heart of heaven. And and so we come to the place where we say, by the grace of God, I know who I am, and I'm a package deal. It's not all good, it's not all bad. And if you're not careful, you'll lean way more to one direction than the other. Some of you just think because you're not perfect, then you're terrible, you're horrible. You walk around with a red stamp reject on your forehead like some, some flawed thing coming off an assembly line. And others of you think a little too highly of yourselves. You've just got to come to the place where you recognize it's, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sometimes the good is really good. Sometimes the bad is pretty bad. Sometimes the ugly, well, I'll leave that for you to decide. But. So the people could exhale, grace to you, grace to you. Will you receive that right now? Grace to you. For everything that's lacking on you, grace to you. For everything that's in an incomplete state, grace to you. For your marriage that has a little broken, couple of broken places in it that haven't been fixed or healed, grace to you. For the divorce that you went through that you never really wanted, but now you're seeing that you had a part to play in it, grace to you. For your sickness that just hasn't gone away, or the pain that hasn't gone away, or the grief in your heart, grace to you. Grace to you. God's unmerited favor upon you. He is for you. He's not going to leave you. And that allowed them also to rejoice. It was not only grace to them, but peace from God the Father. And that's a declaration that Paul is making. And he's saying, it's just a subtle reminder. You have peace with God. You you didn't always, by the way. I don't don't care if you were saved at six. You didn't always have peace with God. Um, People aren't born good. Popular Contemporary thinking, ah, oh, we're all God's children, wrong. Well, people are naturally good at heart, double wrong. There's so much terrible anti Christ thinking out there. But when you were saved, you were translated out of a dominion of darkness. You, you were literally adopted out of satanic orphanhood and brought in to sit at the table with Abba in his family and there, listen, no matter how you and I are performing how we're clicking in our Christian walk he never re-declares war on you there is no war from the father against his children, there's discipline there, I mean he will take you to the woodshed and wear your fanny out, I promise you that, he will Been there, done that, got the switch marks to show it. But he'll never declare war on you. He'll never disown you. And one of the things that we have got to come to terms with is that when we aren't experiencing peace in life, we we sometimes just have to just get down to the kernel in our soul, the, 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 the ember, the light that never goes out. And we just say, but the one who rules the cosmos calls me his own and he said he is for me and that I am not at war with him one of the greatest employments of your faith is for you to retain your confidence in the goodness of God when you haven't been good because I'm going to tell you something our flakiness does not touch his faithfulness and he never changes so grace to you, but peace to you. Now, I know the objection would be, Jeffrey, you, just, you sound like you're being light on, on sin. I I'm not even talking about sin. I'm, I'm talking about God's grace abounding over sin and God's unchanging character towards his kids when we do sin. John wrote and said, if we say we do not sin, we lie. And so the issue is, are we going to stand in his grace and experience his peace or are we going to constantly measure ourselves by ourselves? And so the people could hope, and that's at the end of verse number two, and the reason that they could hope is because the grace and the peace were rooted in Jesus Christ. They're rooted in Christ. That's what I'm trying to tell you here. If I don't, this, this is so new. We have such an eclectic group of Christians that comprise New Bridge and IHOP Atlanta and the mission base, and so um, we've got a lot of doctrinal, theological different backgrounds. We've got, we've got people that were raised Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist, Assemblies of God, Church of Christ. I mean, we're like a big mutt. I mean, we're just, we, we, we've just got all sorts of stuff here. But one of the things that I have found out, and I, I want to be very clear on this, I am so glad God allowed me to be um, inserted into the Baptist world when I got saved. Because what I need, I'm going to tell you where the Baptists knock it out of the park. They love the Word of God. They love it. And so the authority of the Word of God was woven into my soul. And part of what the Word of God re- reveals is this thing that is called positional truth. And it, is not, it has nothing to do with what you feel on any given day as a Christian. It has everything to do with what the authoritative word of God says. And these things are true independently of what we think about them or how we feel about them. Because I'm going to tell you something. On those days where I don't have the peace of God, I've still got peace with God. On those days where I feel like the pig who has taken the third jump into the pig pen and I am carnal or I've said something to my wife or my children, I've treated somebody here lovelessly or I've just been a a pig. On those days, I'm going to tell you something. I am no less loved by the Father than on those days where I am shining with the brilliance of Jesus. Why? How can you say such things, Jeff? Because it's all rooted in what Jesus has done. Do you believe an omniscient, all wise God would ever let something that cost his son his life depend on how you handled it from day to day? I mean, what? Me you I mean, see, we would lose everything 100 times a day. So when we, when we walk through these things, one of, the, one of the things that facilitates the depth of gratitude and praise is when we come to terms with our utter depravity, our total helplessness, the inability of us to ever move even incrementally towards the presence of a holy God, when when we recognize that and it humbles us to the core, but in the same moment we realize that this infinite, glorious, majestic, eternal, holy God withheld no love from us and provided perfect uh, payment for our wretchedness when he gave his son to die on the cross and to top all that off, he pursued you so you would have the chance to believe in it so that you might be saved. And when, when, when we come to terms with that, how could we not be grateful? How could we not worship? How could we not hate sin? You see, man, when, when it depends on us, when our thinking says that it, it really depends on us, then you're in a panic when you blow it and you're proud when you think you've nailed it. Either way, it becomes all about you. And that's not the theme of the ages. There's no chest thumping in heaven. When we get to glory, I don't know how long it'll take for us to get up off our face because when we stand in the resplendent, unspeakable, I don't don't even want to try to describe it, I have not seen, ear, ear has not heard, heart of man cannot conceive the immense glory of God Almighty. And he looked down on a speck of dust called Earth and moved in closer and found a place, and in that place there was a person, and that person was you. And he said, "I love you." I'm going to make you mine forever. So where I am, there you may be also with me. And paradise became your destiny. And when we really get that, the whole nature of our Christian walk begins to change. And if we'll remember it, that's the key.